Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Did you know that there's a 9-11 Broadway musical? A Broadway musical sing and dance show about 9-11. Stream Police Podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Looking for a Netflix recommendation that's worth two hours of your time? Or a forgotten album that's worth picking up on iTunes? OverdueReview.com is your destination for unbiased, unpretentious, thoughtful opinions on movies, TV, and music from every era. OverdueReview.com. Better late. Hello there, my good friend, and I know you have thousands, possibly millions at this point, of different podcasts to choose from, to choose to spend your time with on your commute, you're out for a run, sitting at the office trying to act like you're doing work, whatever. I know you've got myriad choices, so it's much appreciated that you choose to spend some time with us here at the Stream Police Podcast. We don't ask much uh, from you, I should say. Uh, Once every couple weeks, we come on, we talk about TV, movies, and music, especially TV and music. Those are our our real uh, focal points here on the show. And what's streaming right now? What's available to you? What should you watch? What should you listen to? What should you stay away from? I'm Clint Davis, movies and TV editor at uh, OverdueReview.com. I urge you to go over to the website. Just published a uh, review of uh, a French film. I know that sounds... It makes me sound like I'm putting on airs or something, but uh, a French movie from a few years ago called Holy Motors, which I had never seen, but I, I just saw a list of like the hundred top 100 um, movies made since 2000 that BBC did. They they compiled, they asked a bunch of different film uh, critics from around the world what they thought were the best movies of the 21st century, and uh, Holy Motors was one of those movies that I think was in the top 10, and it was one of the few I hadn't seen, and I was like, man, I've never heard of this movie, never seen it, so let's see if it's worth a, worth a damn, and I watched it, I loved it, reviewed it up at the website if you want to read my analysis of it, or maybe you're trying to make sense of that movie because it's kind of tough to, to make sense of, you can check it out right there at OverdueReview.com. A little bit later, we'll be hearing from our music editor, Andy Sedlak, but thank you very much for uh, tuning in. As I always say here, my friend, I urge you to go back and listen to our old episodes because they are all evergreen. And if you look at the name of the episode, generally I titled the episode, the first thing in the title is like the main show that I'm going to spend my most time talking about. And the way I do my reviews is sometimes season by season, but usually I'm talking about an entire series. Um, so if you want to know about HBO's The Leftovers, go and check it out, the episode where I talk about that. If you want to know, uh, speaking of, AB, uh, of HBO, if you want to know about Game of Thrones, 
Look at some of the episodes where I talk about Game of Thrones. It's uh, it's really, and if you want to know about Louis, look at Louis. You want to know about Fargo, look up the episode about Fargo. It's uh, we we try to make it easy for you, and we try to keep the episodes evergreen here on the Stream Police. All right, let's go ahead and get rolling. I'm sitting in my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I always record uh, this show when I'm by myself, at least. It's a tiny little closet. Anyone that's seen it uh, can attest to that fact. And I don't care, though. I'm going to break every fire code rule in the nation, and I'm going to go ahead and light my stogie up here. Good way to get us started, as always, on the stream, police. All right, got the smoke going in the air. Let's talk about some TV, my friend. As we start the show today, I have to recognize a television and film icon that is celebrating an anniversary this month. It has been 50 years since Star Trek debuted on NBC. Can you believe it? 1966, the first edition of Star Trek, the original TV series with Leonard Nimoy and with William Shatner and with uh, George Takei and, you know, the whole the whole crew, the whole classic crew. Uh, the show first debuted on NBC, and Star Trek has really been part of our lives as uh, American pop culture consumers since that day. I mean, for 50 years, there was a, a dark time when the show was off the air and there hadn't been any movies made. But since, you know, really the early 70s, then movies have been made very regularly with various casts, um, all pretty solid, really. I mean, there's not even like the worst Star Trek movies are still pretty fun to watch. And the best ones are some of the best sci-fi movies you're ever going to see. My rule always with the Star Trek films, and I think I've said it on this show before, is the even-numbered ones are great. The odd-numbered ones suck. So stay away from the odd-numbered ones. It's like the opposite of Indiana Jones. In this case, the even-numbered movies, if you see a Star Trek movie with an even number next to it, give it a watch because it's going to be fantastic, no question about it. But what I wanted to talk about and why I wanted to bring up Star Trek right at the start is because I do this segment every week on the show called The Greatest TV Show Theme Song of All Time. And I break down a theme song from a TV show that I thought was just a great theme song from all eras of TV. And this week, I want to not talk about the original Star Trek series, which I do think it had a very good theme song. I want to talk about the fact that 18 years after Star Trek went off the air, after only three seasons, Paramount brought the beloved franchise back to TV. And instead of William Shatner, audiences were treated to the tones of Shakespearean actor Patrick Stewart in the iconic opening monologue and opening theme of Star Trek The Next Generation. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. If you never watched it, it followed the continuing journey of the Starship Enterprise, which was the ship, of course, from the original Star Trek series and the original films. It picked up after the decorated service of Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock, and the rest of the classic crew with a new crew aboard the Starship Enterprise. There were some slight changes to the opening monologue from the original show. You know the monologue I'm talking about. We will boldly go where no man has gone before. Well, in this edition of the show, Picard says instead, we will boldly go where no one has gone before instead of no man. So slight change, but a pretty big one. To seek out new life and new civilizations 
to boldly go where no one has gone before. Now, I'm not here to talk about the show Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm here to talk about the damn theme song. The theme song of this show is one of those that could stop you in your tracks. And I'm not exaggerating here. It was probably the most epic piece of music being heard on television in the late 80s and early 1990s. The song was actually a blend of Alexander Courage's original Star Trek theme, which, as I said before, I love that theme song, and Jerry Goldsmith's incredible theme from Star Trek The Motion Picture, the first film ever made out of the Star Trek franchise. So they kind of blended both of those songs together into one kick-ass theme song. And if you're walking down the hall or something, you're just like doing your chores, you got the TV on in the background, and you hear that song belting out, you're going to stop for at least a second and look at the screen. And usually if you look at the screen, you're going to see some interesting images, and you're going to keep watching. You're like, this is kick-ass. This is awesome. Perhaps the most interesting thing about Star Trek The Next Generation is that it didn't air on a single television network. It was instead produced by Paramount in first-run syndication. So if you don't know that term, first-run syndication means shows like Judge Judy and Xena the Warrior Princess and The People's Court. They're shows that are produced by a studio and then sold to different channels in different markets um, for you know various rates, and the, show, the, the network can air them whenever they please. It's not the same as a show that airs on, like, just NBC or just on CBS. It follows a very different set of rules. And typically when you think of first-run syndication shows, you think of daytime TV shows, but this was an, an instance of a primetime TV show being first-run syndicated. So it was like Judge Judy or Xena. It could be bought by individual networks in individual markets, and it could be aired whenever they wanted to air it. Paramount made a ton of money on the show because it was actually a big rating success in primetime, and it was also critically acclaimed, which is not something you can say about many syndicated shows. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody you know, walking around talking about how Steve Wilkos needs to be the next guy to win an Emmy? And speaking of Emmys, The Next Generation was actually the only syndicated TV series to ever be nominated for Best Drama at the Emmys. I mean, can you imagine that? A first-run syndication show with no home network being nominated for the biggest prize at the Emmys at television's biggest night every year. The show also won a Peabody Award during its run. Once again, that's incredible. I mean, could you imagine the Hercules series with Kevin Sorbo winning you know, a Peabody Award during its run. I mean, that's just, it's incredible for a first-run syndicated show. The show's cast also became fan favorites to the uh, notoriously diehard Star Trek faithful. We had LeVar Burton, Brent Spiner, and Jonathan Frakes. They all were fan favorites by the end of the series' run. And actually, in Jonathan Frakes' case, he's the guy who had the beard. He was the, he was basically like the Captain Kirk of this, you know, version of the show. The growth of his beard in the second season actually gave birth to a TV criticism term called growing the beard, which is the exact opposite of jumping the shark. You've heard of jumping the shark. That's when a show notoriously goes, dives off the cliff, basically, of quality, and it's basically turned into a shitty show at this point. Growing the beard was like the opposite. So when a show is said to be growing the beard, it's a reference to the moment when the quality of the show seriously increased. And in the case of Star Trek The Next Generation, it was when Jonathan Frakes started growing his beard. So that gave birth to that term.
Star Trek The Next Generation ran for seven seasons and 178 episodes. And the storyline was picked up with Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and there have been other series since then. And CBS is starting a new Star Trek series uh, coming sometime uh, this year, I believe. So Star Trek continues to live on, but The Next Generation and its theme song are my pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. All right, now let's pivot a little bit, my friend. I'm not even going to try to come up with a segue from talking about Star Trek The Next Generation to my next topic, so I'll just jump right into it. Today, the, sh- the uh, day that we're actually uh, premiering this episode of The Stream Police is, of course, September 11th, and this marks 15 years since 9-11, since the attacks uh, on the United States in New York and Washington and uh, and United 93's case, a plane that was headed for Washington but was downed in Pennsylvania by a bunch of heroic uh, passengers on board the flight. So 9-11 is what I would call, and I think many would obviously call, the most pivotal moment in American history, the most pivotal day in American history since the 1960s, I would say. I mean, really, just a, if you could point to a single day, it's certainly up there in all of American history. And 9-11 has been tackled at times on screen, on stage, um, on the big and small screen in music. 9-11 has been, of course, a, a talker in pop culture. So I thought I would take a look at a couple of different representations of 9-11 on screen and kind of tell you whether or not these are worth your time. And the ones that I've seen anyways, the ones that I actually like, um, I will give you a take on those. So 9-11 on screen. Who's done it right? Who's uh, Who has totally disgraced the memories of the people who were killed on that day? And let me just go ahead and start right there by saying actually any 9-11, any piece of film that I've seen that dealt explicitly with 9-11... I have a favorable review of. I have not really seen a movie that was about 9-11, documentary or dramatization or otherwise, that I felt like was done in poor taste or, or, or left you know, a bad impression on me or insulted the victim of the people who were killed that day. I've never felt that way about anything I've seen about 9-11. Now, I haven't seen many. I haven't watched like the Robert Pattinson movie where his character dies, at, you know, at the World Trade Center at the end of the... I haven't seen that. That feels exploitative to me. I didn't go, go out and see that film. But the ones I have seen, I have not seen a single one where I felt like, ah, that was awful. That was just really, really bad. I liked some more than others, though. Let me start by talking about one that I haven't seen but I think is interesting to bring up because it sounds like something that would be created on South Park. Did you know that there's a 9-11 Broadway musical? A Broadway musical, sing and dance show about 9-11. Incredible, right? I mean, when you hear me say that, you're thinking, yeah, it's got to be something like something that was on South Park, some kind of bad joke, just horrible. But this show is actually about to go to Broadway. It's doing previews right now in Washington, D.C. at the Ford Theater, where Lincoln was shot, of course, uh, a couple hundred years ago. And the show is called Come From Away. And like I said, it's going to Broadway soon. So reviews of of it have been pretty positive so far. I don't know if I'm one who wants to jump in line to go see a a musical about 9-11, but 
the the premise of the show is interesting. This is not now when you when I say a musical about nine eleven, you probably picture like smoldering buildings, people covered in dust, and they like pick themselves up from the rubble and do like a pirouette and start singing some kind of you know musical number with jazz hands going and maybe a firefighter carrying some woman out and she's kicking her legs and singing. It's not like that. All right, that's how it would be if it was on South Park. The way this musical handles 9-11, Come From Away Again is the name of this musical, it's apparently about some Canadian town whose name I don't remember, this little small town in Canada who on 9-11, when the attacks started happening and when the FAA started diverting all flights and canceling all flights across the U.S., they diverted a bunch of international flights that were coming to America from various countries. They diverted them all to this small Canadian airport in this small town. Not all the flights, but a bunch of them were diverted here. And apparently when the flights were diverted there, people who were on these flights had to stay in this town for like a couple days and up to a week in some cases. And it doubled the population of this town. So you had all these people from all over the world mingling with each other, interacting on a day where they were expecting to be in New York, expecting to you know do business, expecting to see family. And instead, they're stuck with all these strangers somewhere on really the most traumatic day, if these people are Americans, in American in, in modern American history. So the show is really more about humanity. It's about how these characters interact with each other. It's about different cultures coming together. And it's kind of a cool idea, right? I mean, this one town where all these people had to land on a really tragic day and just seeing how, you know, they interact with each other and how they get through it. Now, I feel like it could have maybe just done well as a, as a play. I don't know that it needs to be a song and dance kind of thing. I still feel like that will be weird, but who knows? We'll see if it wins any Tony uh, Awards in the, in the coming years. But Come From Away is going to Broadway soon, and yes, it is a 9-11 musical. So if you thought you'd heard everything, now you probably have heard everything. A 9-11 musical is going to Broadway soon enough. All right, let's talk about films uh, that I've seen about 9-11. Let me start with The Elephant in the Room, the most obvious example of a movie about 9-11, Fahrenheit 9-11 a documentary directed by Michael Moore. Uh, he famously, this documentary won the uh, uh, Palme d'Or at Cannes, which is the biggest award at the Cannes Film Festival. It's a huge award. Um, it's, I mean, it, it really puts you in an elite category of movies. So it won the Palme d'Or. I think this was in 2004, if I have my years right. And Michael Moore famously pulled the movie out of contention for best documentary at the Oscars, which he probably he would have won for sure. This this movie would have won Best Documentary, I think, without question. And he wanted it to compete for Best Picture, which I didn't realize that they can't be in both categories, but he wanted this to be considered for Best Picture. It did not end up getting nominated for Best Picture, so instead it was shut out at the Oscars. And that's, you know, kind of a shame because really it is a, a fascinating film and it's it's probably going to be his long lasting legacy uh, in cinema. So the movie in Moore's trademark, sarcastic, funny, and really in-your-face style uh, goes after the Bush administration and their handling of 9-11. And it's, it's really, it's a long movie, and it takes a lot out of you when you're watching it. It's frustrating at times. The opening of this film, it opens in pitch black, and I remember seeing it in a theater in 2004. I'll never forget seeing this movie in a theater. It's pitch black in the entire theater. The screen's pitch black, and all you hear are the noises uh, from ground zero, just people screaming from all directions and surround sound, uh, some, you know, concrete crumbling to the ground. Uh, you hear police sirens, you hear fire engine sirens, and you don't see anything until all of a sudden the, the images on the screen come up and you realize, obviously, where we are. We already knew where we were, but it's just 
painted in a very clear picture for you. So it's one of the best openings to a movie that I can ever remember seeing. And then more gets funny after that and, uh, you know, just, again, kind of shows off in his classic way. Uh, the movie was very controversial when it came out. It's still controversial to this day. Um, but I happen to be a big fan of this movie. I like Michael Moore in general, but I think, you know, this is really a great movie. And the stunt at the end where he goes on to Capitol Hill and confronts all of these congressmen and women who voted in support of the war in Iraq and wanted to keep sending more troops. He confronts all of them with sheets, uh, sign-up sheets to join the Army, to join the Marines, um, recruitment sheets, and asked them if they would sign up their sons and daughters to you know, to go into the armed forces. And, of course, not a single one of them. He, he approaches like 100 of them, and not a single one of them agrees to sign the thing. Um, and the movie is really a lot about how uh, most of the soldiers who, who fought for America in those wars came from poor neighborhoods, as they often do in many wars. I mean, these are not affluent families sending their kids to war. In some cases they are, but usually that's not the case. So um, it's an interesting movie that goes after more things than just 9-11. It goes at a lot of national security issues and personal privacy issues as well, which are still relevant today. I'm a big fan of Fahrenheit 9-11. I think if you're going to watch a, uh, a movie about the politics around 9-11, that's as good as you can get. It's got a wide scope um, in trying to tackle a lot of different things, and I think Moore did a nice job on it. Not knowing what to do, with no one telling him what to do, and no Secret Service rushing in to take him to safety, Mr. Bush just sat there and continued to read My Pet Goat with the children. Nearly seven minutes passed with nobody doing anything. As Bush sat in that Florida classroom, was he wondering if maybe he should have shown up to work more often? Should he have held at least one meeting since taking office to discuss the threat of terrorism with his head of counterterrorism? Or maybe Mr. Bush was wondering why he had cut terrorism funding from the FBI. Or perhaps he just should have read the security briefing that was given to him on August 6, 2001 which said that Osama bin Laden was planning to attack America by hijacking airplanes. But maybe he wasn't worried about the terrorist threat because the title of the report was too vague. I believe the title was Bin Laden Determined to Attack Inside the United States. Another 9-11 movie is very well done. Again, a documentary. This one's called Rebirth. And this is a movie that follows five people who lost family members and lost loved ones in 9-11, it follows these five people for five years following the attacks. And it's, you know, how are they coping? How are their lives moving on? It's the the lasting impact of losing a family member, losing a loved one suddenly. Someone who's in their prime, someone who's a breadwinner, whatever. Someone who's just in their 30s, they go to work, they never come back from work. You know, how do you get over that? How can you possibly get over that? That's what this movie is about. Very human film. It was actually produced by the folks who uh, curated the National uh, uh, 9-11 Memorial at uh, the World Trade Center site there uh, in New York City. So it was done by people who are close to the thing, and uh, it's a movie that really gives you a lot to think about as far as you know putting yourself in their shoes and losing your own family member on that day. Another really stunning documentary about 9-11 that I urge you to go check out, and this is a really short one, really quick one. It's only about uh, an hour long. A movie called WTC, The First 24 Hours. Obviously, WTC standing for World Trade Center. It's not a great title. WTC, the first 24 hours, it was made by a pair of French brothers who were filming in New York 
when 9-11 happened, and they have this amazing footage of the attacks. They're right there at ground zero as it happens, and the whole movie is just really about the first 24 hours after the attacks happen in New York City at ground zero. There's no commentary of any kind. There's no music of any kind. The movie is just very still, very much in the moment. This is pure, true documentary filmmaking here, and really it's all about spot news uh, filmmaking as well. It's just being on the spot, filming the news as it happened, and uh, not editorializing at all. So WTC, the first 24 hours, one of the purest looks at 9-11 that you're ever going to see. If you can find that one, check it out. Again, like I said, it's only about an hour long, very short film. Let's get to some Hollywood dramatizations of 9-11. I only have a couple I want to mention to you uh, real quick. First off, the best one I think ever made, and as far as a dramatization goes, United 93, which is the story about really the unsung uh, moment on 9-11. Of course, the flights that hit both of the Twin Towers in New York received major news coverage as well. They should have. The images were just unlike anything we've ever seen before, and that's where the most people died. Um, and then the plane that crashed into the Pentagon brought part of the Pentagon down. All the people on board died. Um, luckily, there were not a lot of deaths at the Pentagon, but still, I mean, it was a huge tragedy, and they've since rebuilt the Pentagon, but that received huge news coverage as well. But the one that did not receive a ton of news coverage on that day was the United 93 crash, that uh, plane that crashed in a field in Pennsylvania. And, of course, it was on its way, I believe, to the White House until the people on board realized that they just had to bring this thing down. They knew they were going to die. They took it into their own hands. They took on the people who hijacked the plane, and they brought the plane down just in a field somewhere so that only the people on board died and that no one else was hurt. Um, it, just an incredible uh, story. I mean, it's something that you would you know make up in like a 1970s disaster film, and you'd be like, no way, but this really happened. And the movie United 93 which was directed by Paul Greengrass. He actually wrote and directed the movie. It was kind of his uh, passion project. Greengrass is a guy who did uh, The Bourne Supremacy, did The Bourne Ultimatum, uh, Green Zone. He did Captain Phillips um, and the latest Jason Bourne movie. So he's done a lot of Matt Damon flicks. Uh, but he did United 93 and and really deserves to be commended for telling this story in a great way. And it's an exciting movie. It's a very moving film. It's claustrophobic and it's frightening. I mean, it's a frightening movie, but it's uh, it's really well done. And it's hard to imagine a movie like being a blockbuster that was a film about 9-11, but he did it. And uh, I don't know if anybody else could have done it the way Paul Greengrass did. So United 93 definitely deserves to be on your list. It's a very um, it's a very good film about the subject. And it's it's an exciting watch. Really, it is. Finally, one more Hollywood movie about 9-11. This one I saw in theaters as well back in 2006 when it came out. Oliver Stone's World Trade Center. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't remember a ton about this because I have not seen it since uh, that 10 years ago in theaters when I saw it. But I do remember I didn't love it. Um, I thought it was just kind of overly sappy. I guess I was expecting something else. Again, this movie just focuses on the humanity. It follows a, uh, a first responder played by Nicolas Cage who ends up going to Ground Zero on the day it happens. He gets uh, caught under the rubble there um, at the World Trade Center and uh, miraculously survives somehow. But it's really about he, he and you know some other people trapped in the rubble trying to survive as chaos is going on outside around them and I mean it's 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 a slow watch it's kind of unfolds itself almost like a slice of life even though here it is in the most crazy situation you know ever dreamt up by anyone uh, especially for a first responder and it's I mean it's, it's Oliver Stone it's not one of his best films but uh, he did handle the movie with care and the most surprising thing for an Oliver Stone film about 9-11 
being that there's like no politics in this movie at all. He intentionally left out any kind of political viewpoint, and it was wisely done here. It was too soon. It would have been too soon for a dramatization like that to go into all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and this movie really just kind of floated out there, and it didn't get a whole lot of notice because it wasn't like a Fahrenheit 9-11, even though I think people expected and maybe some people wanted it to be. So World Trade Center is also floating around out there for you if you want to check it out. I don't love that movie, but I probably need to give it a rewatch just to be fair. But again, not a bad movie. I don't think it, it disgraced anyone. I don't think it was in poor taste uh, at all. Where'd that wind come from, old sunsorts? I don't know. Oh, the fire just goes out like that, sir. What's that? I don't know. You're not a big talker, are you? Uh, no. Well, see, you got to talk to me because... Ah! 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 I can't because my knees are crushed again. That's why I can't fucking talk. Oh, God. The final thing I'm going to recommend for you, if you want to really understand 9-11 and if you want to really see an accurate document of 9-11 and the chaos that was going on that day, as none of us will forget, you know, when we were if, if you were alive when it happened and if you were really conscious when it happened, um, if you go to the website archive.org, they're like, uh, I don't know if it's a government thing or what, but they've been slowly building an archive of like internet history. They've, uh, it's just really cultural history. They've got like old arcade games on there you can play. They've got all kinds of information um, from, you know, the history of culture at this one website. And archive.org has a section called Understanding 9-11. So if you just Google Understanding 9-11 Archive and go into this thing, it is incredible. It, it lays out, it gives you like a TV guide grid of different channels. We've got all four of the major networks. We've got CNN. We've got uh, a bunch of different international networks. We've got BBC. We've got you know Mexican channel. We've got a, a Chinese channel. We've got uh, a couple channels from the Middle East. bunch of different TV channels and what they aired minute by minute on the day, on September 11th, and it goes like the footage goes for about a week. It's not that user-friendly because the clips are like brought to you in minute-long portions, so it's kind of frustrating if you want to watch long portions. But you can literally break down minute by minute. You can see what was airing, what was on CNN right before the attack happened. How were they talking about it right at the start? And it's just incredible to see them try to piece this thing together um, and frustrating at times because we know the whole story. So when you're watching and hearing them talk about, oh, my God, how could an accident, how could a plane accidentally crash into the World Trade Center? It must have been an electrical failure or something. And you're like yelling at the TV going, oh, my God, you moron, this is planned. Uh, but, you know, you have to put yourself in their shoes. They didn't know anything. They didn't want to, uh, you know, make people panic for no reason. So it's really an incredible thing. I, I love this. I think it's the best documentation of 9-11 that's available for us um, online. And it's archive.org, understanding 9-11. Just Google that. Check it out if you want to learn more about 9-11, if you want to see that TV coverage of it on the day it happened from various channels. And it's really interesting to see how the coverage is really all similar across all the networks.
So there you go, 9-11 on screen. Mostly I'd give it favorable reviews so far, but again, I haven't seen some of the ones that I heard were, you know, really didn't do it in a, in a, in a good way. But uh, that's, uh, that's my remembrance of 9-11 here, 15 years after the attacks happened on the stream police. All right, I'm going to toss things over to Andy Sedlak, our music editor at OverdueReview.com. We'll hear what he's got coming through the headphones this week, which I guess coming up soon he will not be able to plug into his iPhone anymore. So he better enjoy those earbuds while he can. Take it away, Mr. Sedlak. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, hey, how are you? Really, uh, I do. I really hope you guys enjoyed that last show, the one that Clint and I did live. We had a ball, let me tell you. It really reminded me um, of our old college radio days. We were on the air playing music. We were talking sports. We did like a shock jock gimmicky thing on Wednesdays. We broadcasted uh, basketball and baseball games. It was really our thing. That's really where... Uh, we were in our element, and I thought that that last show captured some of that. So again, I, I do. I really hope you enjoyed that. So let me get down to business here, and I want to start by saying it's really quite amazing how fast your opinion of an artist can change. I mean, an entertainer is not a friend. It's not family. Like anyone that you observe from a distance, your opinion of him or her can just change. Brings me to Megan Trainer, who I was absolutely delighted by when her first album came out. All about that bass? Forget it. Fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty clear. I ain't no size two, but I can shake it, shake it like I'm supposed to do. I liked that there were serious undertones about accepting yourself and having a uh, a positive body image. And that was wrapped up in humor. It was wrapped up in candy-coated pop. I like that. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I also like Dear Future Husband. Dear Future Husband, here's a few things you need to know if you want to I think that younger fans and 20-somethings could dig that. It, it had like this great vibe that reminded me of Dion and the Belmonts, Run Around Sue. Yeah. Yeah. 
Can you hear it? Can you hear it a little bit there? I like that record by Megan Trainer so much that I reviewed it for OverdueReview.com. I gushed. <laughs> I said that I thought she had revived doo one of my favorite songs on the album was a uh, it was an album cut, a deep cut. It's called 3 a.m. 3 a.m. Yep, I'm facing you once again. Even though I'm hanging with my friends, I can't help it. I can't help myself. No, 3 a.m. I might be looking for a late night friend, and baby, I can get you out my head. I can't help it. I can't help myself. No. So. I considered myself a fan. I considered myself a knowledgeable, well-informed fan. And if you're a fan, that means you're excited to see what an artist does next. We got our first peak in March. That's when she released a song called No. My name is No. My sign is No. My number is No. You need to let it go. Then in May, a song called Me Too. If I was you, I'd wanna be me too. I'd wanna be me too. I'd wanna be me too. If I was you, I'd wanna be me too. I'd wanna be me too. I'd wanna be me. This is where uh, things started to go off the tracks. Gone was that kind of that bouncy bubblegum throwback so- that, that throwback sound. Gone was all the individuality, really. In its place was something generic, generic uh, sentiment, generic uh, production that really stood in the same line as three-quarters of the other pop acts on the radio right now. I listened to the album. It's called Thank You. She called it Thank You because it was supposed to be a message to her fans. But no, really, that song ended up setting the tone. The record was originally going to be sort of a a mix of sounds and influences, but after No did so well in the marketplace, they scrapped half the album and replaced it with straight-ahead pop. not making that up. That's just a fact. You can do your own reading. I like the witty underdog. I dislike the bratty millennial. Those are the differences between Megan Trainor's first and second album. She was a witty underdog on her first album. Comes across like a bratty millennial on her second. A total about face. I'm all for maturity. But I would argue her first album was, in a way, much more mature than her second. What's mature about... uh, trying to fit in which is what that second album to me really felt like it felt like she was trying to fit in on radio my opinion of Megan Trainer has changed I'm not thrilled about it I really dug that quirky sense of humor the sort of the down to the dumps experience in her writing she has a great voice but now when I think of Megan Trainer, it's too bad I think of uh, just another 20 something too busy uh, I don't know taking a selfie to notice what's really going on in the, uh, in the unfiltered world, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, 
Yes, I, I myself, I am a 20-something. But you know what I mean? It's just a bummer. So, just so, oh, God. So goddamn bratty. Jeez. Give me a break. My name is no. My sign is no. My number is no. You need to let it go. What I want to know is, do you have any artists that, that fall into this category? Artists that you liked, but then something happened. Something happened. And it's okay if you do. Again, these these people, they, they aren't family. I, I think we, we pledge too much allegiance to artists sometimes. And uh, even when the music sucks, you know, I think uh, I've seen so many people make excuses for bad music. Just fess up. If the music sucks, then say it sucks. You don't owe these people anything. You don't have to cover for them. If you've gone through this, I want you to shoot me an email, sedlakjournal at gmail.com, S-E-D-L-A-K, the word journal, all squished together, at gmail.com. Hit me up, let me know, I'll read, uh, I'll be happy to read your comments on the next show. Clint was talking about 9-11 movies, and I sort of want to piggyback off of that. September 11th was, God, I mean, it was such a... uh, a complex event, the emotion of the day, the, the confusion, the, the rallying, the long-term fallout. And when you're dealing with something so massive, it's bound to move you in one direction or another. And when creative types are moved, they are driven to create. Nobody writes a song when they're in neutral. It's when they are moved one way or another. That's when the writing process takes place. Art has been inspired by tragedy for hundreds of years, by the way. You go to any art gallery, there are countless paintings uh, about the French Revolution. There's a, actually, there's a famous painting uh, depicting like the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in Paris. There's a noted painting that's, uh, if I remember it correctly, is real famous. It shows uh, King Charles of England being beheaded. You know, tragedy has been, you know, of course, Clint touched on it, has been a sort of inspiration for some of the best films ever made. Music works the same way. Think of Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. So it's not surprising that artists felt compelled to address 9-11. But addressing a situation that leaves you so uh, confounded can be difficult. Bruce Springsteen released an album called The Rising in 2002, and it's generally looked at as the high watermark for, uh, for 9-11-influenced music. He never mentions the tragedy by name on that album, ever. It's about the emotional fallout after the tragedy, or after any tragedy. But the artist is on record saying that that particular event certainly inspired it. Let's Roll by Neil Young uh, also got quite a bit of airplay after the attacks on September 11th. It was a September 11th song, but not based in New York, but rather on United Airlines Flight 93. That's the plane figured to be heading for either the Capitol building or the White House. 
but ended up crashing in a Pennsylvania field. That's because of a passenger uprising that uh, prevented the what would sure to be unprecedented destruction to Washington, D.C. Young sings uh, from the, the passenger's point of view in the moments before he and others rush the hijackers. Young, uh, Young also wrote CSNY's Ohio. And in Let's Roll, he, he, he finds that signature voice. As an artist, he find, he taps into the core of what his best music is about. It's moving, and more than that, it forces you to think. It's, it's phenomenal. Truly. The fact of the matter is some genres do better than others when it comes to dealing with topical issues. Rock music has really a pretty good track record. Hip-hop has a pretty good track record. But when it comes to addressing topical issues, I would argue that the country genre has the least impressive track record. I say this knowing full well that I'm going to touch on songs that a few people out there will truly love. Know that I take absolutely no pleasure in doing that. There's a song called Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning. It's by Alan Jackson. I watched CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you the difference in Iraq and Iran. The song was written and recorded with mixed emotions. It's my understanding that although Jackson wanted to and de- desired to write a song capturing the emotions surrounding the attacks, he found it difficult to do so. He felt even more uneasy recording it. He was worried that it may appear that he was capitalizing on a tragedy. I think Jackson is a, a true blue country artist. One whose intentions are almost always on the right side of the line. But that doesn't make this a good song. At the same time, it, it's hardly the most cringeworthy of the era. Some were downright confrontational, like a song called Have You Forgotten? Have you forgotten? That song was uh, the biggest hit of Daryl Worley's career. Other songs include Family Tree and Tennessee River Run. Did you hear those? Jesus, no, of course you didn't. And they were the songs released right before and right after Have You Forgotten. The thing about it was that this song was released in March of 2003, the same month that the U.S. invaded Iraq. Here we are 16 years later, and still nobody, nobody's forgotten. Then there's Toby Keith. Oh, justice will be served and the battle will rage. This big dog will fight when you rattle his cage. And you'll be sorry that you mess with the U.S. of A. Cause we'll put a boot in your ass, it's the American way. Like Alan Jackson, Toby Keith never intended to uh, record this song. A group of Marines convinced him it was his duty to record it. In fact, they told him it would be his way of serving his country. I mean, when a Marine tells you that, what would any country boy do? 
It was a number one hit, but Keith later uh, walked back some of the lyrics explaining that they were written not only in anger after September 11th, but also in the wake of his dad's death. Everybody from Disturbed to the Eagles has addressed 9-11 in their music. One of the better came from Leonard Cohen. It's called On That Day. Some people say it's what we deserve for sins against God and for crimes in the world. I wouldn't know I'm just holding the fort since that day they wounded New York. There were a number of country songs that uh, just didn't have the dexterity to hold up over time, like this one. It was released one week after the September 11th attacks. I pledge allegiance to this flag. And if that bothers you, well, that's too bad. But if you got pride and you're proud to do, hey, we could use the more like me and you. That's where the Stars and Stripes and the Eagle Fly by Aaron Tippin. Released one week after the attacks on 9-11. Taste for Tacky. What do you think? I don't know enough about Aaron Tippin to decide, so you tell me. Email me. Sedlackjournal at gmail.com. All right, it's time for five more songs to add to your Stream Police playlist. We are building the perfect playlist known to man. If you'd like to browse the songs already recommended, we've got a Spotify playlist already waiting for you. These songs will soon be added. First, Surf's Up by Jim Steinman. Simon wrote all the lyrics to Meatloaf's uh, most famous songs. In fact, the pair have another record uh, finished. It'll be coming out very, very soon. They said that when Steinman released his solo album, that he couldn't sing. I beg to differ. I beg to differ. Listen to Surf's Up. It's there. Next, this is called Entitlement by Jack White. In a town when everybody feels entitled, why can't I? Uh, it's a good one for the kids. Next, uh, Clear as the Driven Snow by the Doobie Brothers. I keep rolling, keep rolling, keep rolling, and I can't stop. Rolling, and I can't stop. It's driving me out of my mind. Then the truck stops, I'm playing hot, I'm cold drop, and I'm so close. Cold drop, and I'm so close. Give me a little more time. Scoot me around, took my girl. Give me down slow, don't let me go. It- 
took me a long time to appreciate the doobies, but I'm starting to come around. All right, now I'm going to give you Come On and Love Me by Kiss. I'm a man. I'm no baby. And you're looking every inch a lady. You're good looking and you're looking like you should be good. You were this man. Now you're nearer. I can feel your face inside the mirror. The lights are out and And last, but certainly not least, it's Trash It Up by Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. Bring out the Fredericks of Hollywood. I feel very good. Trash it up. Come on, baby. Let's lift it up. Trash it up. Come on, honey. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's good stuff. That's nasty. All right, guys, have a good couple weeks. Talk to you later. Thank you very much, Andy. Once again, I'm Clint Davis, the movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com here on the Stream Police Podcast. And let me pivot into television. Uh, last year, I did a fall TV preview where I took a look at 10 TV shows that were uh, debuting last fall that I thought looked interesting. And I'm going to do that similar thing here because it seemed like you guys enjoyed it last year. I had a couple of uh, listeners asking me if the fall TV preview was coming. And indeed it is. Here it is. So I'm going to do it a little differently this year. I'm going to give you five television shows that are debuting this month. So in September... Five television shows I think look interesting. And then next month in October, I'll give you five more shows that are debuting in that month that I think also look solid. So let's start with these five shows debuting this month. And a couple of them have already debuted by the time this episode is airing. Interestingly, the five shows I picked all star either women or black actors. The lead actor in all of these are either are you know uh, either women or black actors, and in some cases they're black women. So uh, interesting there. Just uh, just saying, I think a lot of these shows are looking very interesting, and we're not pandering to minorities anymore with TV shows, which is a great thing. It's not just some you know silly comedy about a black family, which is about as you know ethnically diverse as you would get on TV before. We're talking about real substantive shows that instead of starring white actors as they usually would, are starring black actors, and a lot of times they're coming from black writers or they're coming from female writers. So it's it's uh, it's doubly pleasing. Let me start off with one of those shows, and that would be Atlanta, which uh, debuted on FX on September 6th. So Atlanta basically, to me, looks like the anti-empire. This show was created by and stars Donald Glover, who's also known as Childish Gambino. He uh, raps. He's uh, been you've seen, probably seen him before if you've watched Thirty Rock. He was on that show. He's a stand-up comic as well. On Thirty Rock, he actually wrote for that show and he played one of the writers. He was like the only black writer um, in the writers' room on the Girly Show, which was on that TV show. So Donald Glover's been around for a while, and here he is creating a TV show. And the show looks interesting. It looks 
really different from anything else I'm seeing on TV right now. It's a single camera show about a small timer played by Glover trying to break into the Atlanta rap scene. So like I said, it's like the anti-empire because it does follow somebody trying to get into the rap scene, but it's like the realistic version of that show because this guy's not rich yet. He's not starting at the top. He's starting at the bottom, and I don't think the show's going to have musical numbers and uh, soapiness. It doesn't look like it will anyways from the promos. That I've watched. And speaking of those promos, the promos for Atlanta have been absolutely striking. Uh, the show looks really smart. It looks visually interesting. It doesn't look flashy at all. And it looks like, uh, from what I've read, the characters are you know pretty all well defined, um, at least in the first couple episodes of the show. So Atlanta is definitely one of those shows I'm going to be watching this fall. And it started uh, on FX on September 6th. Another show that has already premiered by the time I'm talking to you, but I think looks very good, is Better Things, which is also going to be on FX uh, and debuted on September 8th. Now, this show could be pigeonholed as like the female version of Louie. And the reason that would be is because the show was created by Louis C.K. and Pamela Adlon, who are a, a team that worked together. Uh, they've worked together many times already. They've worked together on Lucky Louie back on HBO. They worked together plenty on FX's Louie, which is one of my favorite shows of all time. I've talked about it plenty of times here on the show. Uh, Pamela Adlon played uh, Pamela in Louie, and she played uh, Louie's wife in Lucky Louie on HBO. So here she is being on her own. It doesn't look like CK is actually in this show, um, but the show looks to be in the same vein as Louie for sure. And Pamela Adlon was always great on Louie. She, she really just brought so much realism, and she seemed so down to earth on that show. And she, like I said, she just seemed so damn real. And in this show, she's stepping into the starring role for really the first time in her career, and it looks like she's going to be playing a a similar character to the character of Louie in the show Louie, but perhaps a little bit more lively. Uh, she plays a single mother of three daughters in this show, and in the promos it looks funny. Like I said, it looks a little bit more lively than Louie does, um, and that's not a bad thing. And um, It's on FX, and like I said, created by Louis C.K. and Pamela Adlon. So I hope that show does well uh, because I think she's definitely earned it, and uh, Better Things premiered on FX on September 8th. I'll definitely be watching that one this fall. What? 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 Mom, I didn't say anything. Neither did I. Then why are you mad at me? <sighs> Can I ask you something? Could you get pot for me? What? Like, don't you want me to have clean, organic pot? Honey, these things are normal, but you should be ashamed of them. You're my mom. I want you to know if I have sex or if I want to get high. Ah! No, hide things from me. Please. Another good-looking show that has already debuted, but uh, to use the word debut is kind of an old-fashioned word for this one because it's on Amazon, so that means all the episodes are there for you to watch. One Mississippi, which uh, debuted on September 9th on Amazon. So if you have an Amazon subscription, you can check this one out right now. It was created by Tignataro, and she plays herself uh, in the—I'm sorry, she doesn't play herself in the show, but she stars herself in the show as— a woman who goes back home to Mississippi as her mom is being taken off of life support. That's, I think, the setup, at least in the first episode. So it's an adult family comedy. It definitely looks to be in the same vein as Transparent. It looks maybe a little bit more jokey, a little bit more funny, um, at least in the promos that I've seen. 
The show was created by Tignataro and co-created by Diablo Cody, who uh, you'll remember Diablo Cody. She won an Oscar for writing the screenplay for Juno years ago. She uh, wrote Jennifer's Body. She created uh, the United States of Terra. She's done you know a lot of work really since she burst onto the scene with Juno a few years ago, and uh, she's she's an exciting writer. So to see her name on this, I think gives it uh, you know a little bit of commercial appeal as well. And Louis C.K. did produce this show also. Uh, he and Ataro go back away. She's uh, she's a, a very successful stand-up comedian as well. So One Mississippi right now is on Amazon if you want to give it a watch. And, uh, again, it looks in the vein of Transparent, and we could have more shows in the vein of Transparent. I'd be totally fine with that. Another one on Amazon that is debuting this fall as part of my five September shows that I'm going to be checking out is Fleabag. And this one looks like... It really just looks like it's going to be raw and funny from the promos that I've seen. It stars uh, a woman who is talking right to camera a lot of times, and the people around her can't tell that doesn't you know they don't know that she's talking to camera, uh, but she's you know breaking the fourth wall plenty and being really funny. It's uh, it's a British show. It's like a modern female Alfie is kind of the way that I'm thinking of this because it, it follows a thirty something single British woman whose character is actually named Fleabag in all the information that I've read. She talks to the camera, she sleeps with horrible guys, and the actor playing her seems like a natural. From the promo I saw, I was laughing. I mean, it was only like a two-minute promo, and I laughed several times, and I thought, this woman just looks like she's in control, and she's very smooth and very funny, um, and this does not look like the kind of character that you want to use as a role model. So if you're looking for that kind of show, go to CBS or ABC or something. Do not watch Fleabag on Amazon. It just looks different and daring, and that's you know what I always appreciate in a good TV show. So Fleabag, the entire first season, will be on Amazon on September 16th. What are you getting? Oh, just these for my tiny bleeding vagina. Hot. You? Stock cubes. Hot. Hope it's a light flow. Oh, <laughs> it never is. <laughs> it never is. So two for Amazon and two for FX so far in my five September shows that look interesting. Clint, why aren't you giving any love to the networks? Where's the love to the big four networks? Well, believe me, I did a lot of research for this segment. I looked through promos and information about a lot of network shows, and I was iffy on a few of them. I thought This Is Us looks kind of, you know, that could be good or it could be just, it could turn into a sappy piece of garbage like Parenthood did after a little while. Um, the Exorcist could be cool, but I just don't know where they're going to get enough steam to run an entire season on that. So I don't know. But I did settle on one network show in September as one of my five shows that look interesting this month, and that would be Fox's Pitch, which debuts on September 22nd. Now, Pitch could end up being really bad. I don't know if this is going to be a great show or not, but I'm willing to take a chance on it. This show, though, looks more like a movie than a TV series, which can be a problem because, you know, how are we going to stretch this thing to, to last long enough? I think it would be a very solid movie, but, you know, we've got it as a TV show, so we'll live with it. But the trailer makes the show look really solid in terms of production values and execution. It just looks like it's a well-made series. And if you haven't heard of Pitch, this is the first show to officially feature Major League Baseball. So it's tied into Major League Baseball. They've got Major League Baseball actual teams, logos, uniforms, and it's set in the world of baseball. So it's going to be very authentic in that way. But, of course, you know, being connected to a major sports league, 
is dangerous because it, it can limit some of the storylines you're going to tell. It may be limit. It may limit some of the language you're able to use, and you know you're probably not going to be able to make the sport look too bad. So that can be a bad thing, but I think it'll ultimately be good in what this sto- this show is about and in lending to the authenticity. We're not going to have like some fake-ass baseball teams like you know the Cincinnati Chefs or something going up against the uh, Cleveland Argonauts, and we're supposed to believe those are real baseball teams. That's not the way it is here. But the show does have a novel plot idea. It's this, The story is going to be about a woman, a young woman, who becomes a Major League Baseball pitcher. She becomes the first woman to ever make it through the minors in baseball, get called up to the majors, and pitching in Major League Baseball. So, Obviously, you can tell that there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of issues about sexism um, in the storyline. The promo is very heavy-handed with that. Um, it, it does look like the kind of show that if you're looking for a positive role model, the main character would be one. Um, and the lead character in this show is going to have to be very compelling to carry a full series. I feel like, but from the promo I saw, the uh, the young actor planner uh, really you know seems like somebody I could buy in a show. So don't expect the show to be gritty. Expect it to be kind of more like a family show, as it was co-created by a guy who's mostly written Disney films. But Pitch could have some claws in it. We'll hope that Major League Baseball doesn't totally uh, neuter the show. Uh, But it is going to be debuting on Fox on September 22nd. And again, that is Pitch. So the five fall TV shows I'm looking forward to are FX's Atlanta, FX's Better Things, Amazon's One Mississippi, Amazon's Fleabag, and Fox's Pitch. And those shows are all coming at you this month, new on the small screen. Finally, here on the Stream Police, I always like to leave you with a couple movies that are now streaming on Netflix and Amazon that you may not have seen yet. I always want to leave you with something good that you can check out. On Netflix, if you have Netflix and you haven't watched it, Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear is now streaming. And what an intense movie this is. If you like thrillers, if you love Robert De Niro, this is one of De Niro's last best performances. Um, and it's one of the few times where he's not playing like a he's not playing a mafia gangster. He is playing a criminal. He's playing a tough guy here. Uh, but, you know, this is a guy that's got a screw loose and he's going after uh, the lawyer who put him in jail years ago. Um, and the lawyer's family. He's just he's going after them full tilt like a juggernaut. So uh, Cape Fear is a really exciting movie, really intense movie. It's got great music, and it's uh, really a, a fantastic Martin Scorsese movie, um, absolutely one of his best films. So that right now is on Netflix. I could recommend it all day long. And Amazon, if you've got Amazon Prime and you're looking for a movie you haven't seen yet, maybe you haven't watched JFK. That's Oliver Stone's film about the assassination of Kennedy and the investigation into it afterwards. This movie is full of conspiracy theories about uh, the grassy knoll and about the magic bullet. And in my opinion, JFK has one of the best casts ever put together in a movie. I mean, it is top to bottom, incredible actors. Just a lot of them are just in like one scene. I mean, we've got John Candy. We've got Kevin Bacon, Kevin Costner, Gary Oldman's in it. Um, we've got Wayne Knight. I mean, it's, it's really Joe Pesci. It's a fan. It's an amazing cast in this movie. And I'm, I'm not saying that to be hyperbolic. It's, it's a great cast. I think it's Kevin Costner's best work of his entire career. So JFK's Powerhouse is a long movie. It's three hours and eight minutes long, but so worth the time. And in my opinion, 
if you're interested in film editing at all, if you like editing, if you, you like the craft of editing, I think JFK is the most well-edited movie ever made. I think it's a masterpiece of editing, and I point to it every time somebody, if, if anyone ever wants to know about editing in movies, I'll point to JFK and say, this is how you edit a film, and the music is awesome in this movie. Absolutely one of my favorite scores ever. Conley yells out, my God, they're going to kill us all. Somewhere around this time now, another shot that misses the clock completely strikes James Cole down by the underpass. The car breaks. The sixth and fatal shot, frame 313, takes Kennedy in the head from the front. This is the key shot. The president going back and to his left. Shot from the front and right. Totally inconsistent with a shot from the depository. Again, back. And to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. JFK, uh, an old favorite of mine, is on Amazon right now. And Cape Fear is on Netflix. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Coming up in future episodes, I am going to be telling you about uh, the best-looking shows starting in October. And next time, I'm finally going to get to my review of Bloodline, which has two seasons on Netflix right now. Thanks to Andy Sedlak, our music editor, for his uh, immeasurable contributions to the show. And thank you so much for listening. Uh, You the real MVP as Kevin Durant would say. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in. Please pass it along to your friends. We, uh, we don't make any money off the show uh, yet anyway, so uh, maybe you could change that. Get us a few more listeners and, and turn us on to your friends. And like I said, go back in the archive and check out some of those evergreen shows. If there's any certain show you want to hear my take on, go check it out right now uh, in iTunes, at Acast, wherever it is that you listen to this show, on Stitcher, whatever. All right, I'm Clint Davis, movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com. Check us out on Twitter at Overdue underscore review and on Facebook at Overdue Review. We'll talk to you next time. Until then, stream on, my friend. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.